You're listening to Mile 406, your mobile learning opportunity from the Montana Department of Transportation. And now your host of Mile 406. I did not know that we had a historian here until just recently. Really? Didn't know we have an archaeologist either. Ah. Uh, this was all new to me. I don't know if I explained the purpose of these podcasts that I'm mm-hmm. doing. Um, what well, all of us are doing, we're sharing the responsibility. The people here in Helena get a lot more opportunities to learn yeah, about stuff. Yeah. So we're trying to find alternative methods to deliver content out to them. Yeah. So we decide to put together these podcasts that they can listen to while they're on the road, going between job sites. Yeah. And one of the big pushes is to try to get the culture of the agency out there, to help people understand mm-hmm. what it is that we're trying to do. So having a little bit of history about where we came from Yeah. to see, you know, we started off here, here's where we're at now, and in the future, here's where we're trying to get to. Yeah. And so once they told us that we have you here, <laughs> I started reading your book. Uh-huh. It didn't put you to sleep. I was loving it. All I, right. I'm a big history buff. Uh-huh. Um, All right. I, I have to ask, how mm-hmm. did you get into writing this? It's kind of a long story. Part of it was that at one time, planning was offering scholarships for employees to go back to school. And I thought, you know, I got a master's degree, but I always kind of felt like I should finish the whole thing up, you know, and get a PhD as well. And I thought the perfect dissertation would be the history of this department because it's had such a big impact on the state of Montana, its history and all Mm -hmm. that. And... uh, and it's everywhere. I mean, you can see the doings of the department no matter where you go, practically. And so I started writing something up and then found out about this place, History Press. And I contacted them and they said, well, yeah, we'd love it, but it can only be so many words. So I had to cut the thing way, way back, you know, to make it fit. And, and uh it's been a good seller, I guess, but from what I hear, I get a royalty check still. Well, I don't. The department does. So I talked to my uh, my administrator, was Lynn Zantel at that time, and told her about it. I said, I'd love to write this, and I think we could do it. And she says, well, fine. You can do it here at work as long as you don't accept the royalties. So essentially, the department paid me to write that book. So... I'm about halfway through it, uh-huh. and I've been loving what you've written in here. Mm-hmm. It, it's to me, it's very fascinating, very interesting. Yeah. Well, there's a whole lot more to it, but that was all we had room for. <laughs> <laughs> well, Goodness. well, good. I, I'd actually yeah. like to hear some of the other stuff that you yeah. found out that's not in here. I'm on page sixty-four of it right now. Oh, so I mean, I'm probably yeah. about third halfway okay. through. Well, there's another one that kind of, two others that kind of go, three others that kind of go with it, four others. Books? Yeah. Um, I can get you copies of those, or some of them. I wrote one on the Beartooth Highway about the history of it. I mean, we've all seen the scenic photos and all that. Mm -hmm. I've never actually taken it yet. Well, you got to do that sometime. It's pretty cool. But no one really knew the history of it. So I did a, one of these books for that, and there's one that just came out last year called Montana Highway Tales. That's about some of the historic sites next to the road that we found over the years, and about some of the highways that are in there. 
you know, I don't know if you know our director very well. I, I don't yet. And, um, and he knows me. We, he likes history, too. And he was asking about, telling me about the bridge book and how he just read that. And I was telling him, well, I think we need to update it because I know a lot more about that subject than I did, you know, 17 years ago when, when it was published. And I says, but more pressing, I says, is I think we need to update the Highway Historical Marker book it's been out of print for years and the last one was in 2008 and um, I don't think I have any more copies of that around but uh, he said well that's that was great he says I can find some money to redo it and, and I said well I think we need to because there's like 300 markers on mm -hmm. there and it's online it's you found them on there but the subject came up of why not a phone app I would love that which there was something that you, like a radio frequency, that as you get close to them, you can, someone will read you the marker text because we don't want you to read the text while you're driving. And so we're going to start working on that. I can think. you not use like Pokemon Go does? I, I should know that. My daughter and son-in-law play that. So it's it uses your GPS location uh -huh. and there's like stops that you go to. Yeah. Again, huge nerd. It, knows where you are using your gps location uh -huh. and there's certain things at, at each of these stuff it's like geocaching but yeah. on your yeah, phone that would work that would work i think what we need too is that that's not real accessible what you got i mean i don't know if anybody sitting in conrad montana can log into it and see it um probably really. not yeah there's many places where we don't have signals out there yeah which I mean, yes, I guess yeah. the little radio thing would yeah. work too. But well, we'll figure out something. You know, I think we're going to do it as a research research thing. So there's that book too, but it's a little bit harder to get now. But it's hopelessly outdated. I mean, most of the markers in there, a lot of them have been rewritten, or there's new ones. Or you know, these places, the history is great, and my goal has always kind of been to make sure the people who work here know that. That they're part of the of the historical process. That what they do here is important, and it has been important for over a century. And so we'll keep working on it as I'll keep working on it as long as I'm here. That Over. right there, that message. Mm -hmm. I just came from a meeting with the other HR trainers, Casey yeah. and, and Robin, and we're revamping the employee onboarding. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why don't we have John come into our onboarding class? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're supposed to be focusing on the culture of the agency and yeah. making this an employer of choice and understanding the history, yeah. the rich history that this place has. Yeah. We should be utilizing that and showing that, I mean, the big thing for me is, is helping our employees understand that no matter yeah. where we're at, we're all here for the same purpose. Yeah. To help the people of Montana. Yep. And I actually had wrote down to ask you or to have you comment on a line that you wrote in here that I just thought was absolutely fantastic. And that kind of really said what it is that I've been trying to get people to understand. And it was, see, I think it might have been in the introduction here, but it was about how it takes a lot of people nowadays to build and to do right. what we do. 
Right. And it's not just the engineers. It's not just. Yeah, it's in the intro, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's the not just yeah. any one group of, of people within the agency. It takes. Yeah, we're a team. Yes. Yeah. A huge team that we work yeah. together. Yep. And we work, we've worked together great for a long time. There's a little, some bumps in the road, no pun intended. Um, in the early 90s, when the interstate engineers started to retire, because they didn't like the whole team concept that much. Unless you were an engineer, you weren't much, you didn't really rate it. And, um, but since then, the engineers, the designers, everybody has kind of, I think, grown up with that whole culture that this is teamwork and it's not just them. Mm -hmm. It's the biologists, it's the historian, the archeologists, you know, um, the right of way people, the planners, the whole works. I look at me. That it's done, yeah. And my, my job here is to help our employees succeed, to, right. to be able to do their job better. Right. And so even though I'm not out there helping planning a roundabout, yeah. or I'm not checking the soils or anything like that, Right. I'm still trying to help in my own way to get people to right. be able to perform at their best. Yeah. And this place does great with them doing that. Like I said, I, I yeah. spent seven years at DPHHS. Yeah. In that time, I worked with Kathy Overton and more in full time in building MDT platforms. Yeah. And I learned about MDT through working with them yeah. and was always very impressed with what I saw as an yeah. outsider yeah. and wanted to work here for a long time. So yeah. when this position came available, I was... You jumped on it, huh? Very much so. <laughs> All right. Well, my daughter works here now, too. She's a, she's a historian. She's down in planning, doing the systems impact stuff. She's starting to get a little bit of inkling what this place really is. That it's a lot more than what she thought it was. Mm -hmm. so, There's still a lot for me to learn. Oh, yeah. I'm still learning all the time. I've been here, in just a couple of days, I've been here for eight months. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm still on my first day. There's just so much I learn all the time. You know, if it's any help, I've been here almost 33 years, and I'm still learning. <laughs> so, Part of my background, I actually started doing employee training and development, working for Delta Airlines, uh, and then moved to Transworld Airlines. Uh, and then... We got bought out by Americans while I was working for Americans. So I've, yeah. I've had a love of transportation. Oh, yeah. My passion does still fall into that aeronautics, like, which is kind of funny because in the Navy, yeah. first I was in the Navy, not yeah. in the Air Force, yeah. and I was a submariner, so yeah, didn't touch a single plane. But uh -huh. I, after I got out of the Navy, I worked for the airline industry, and yeah. I just fell in love with it. And yeah. I hear you there. I mean, I work with aeronautics quite a bit too, and I really I like working with them. I mean, it's all, totally different from what I was used to here. Mm -hmm. um, our big our big project was with the uh, with the airway beacons, the nighttime beacons, right? Because Montana was the last state in the union to still maintain that nighttime beacon system, and we had they wanted to get rid of it, and we did, but we preserved all but one of them, so that was good. But that was fun. I mean, it was something totally different from what I was used to. Well, I tried to get an office down there, aeronautics, but I couldn't get it. I would love to be down there. Yeah. I, I, 
I still want to get down to the airport though and try Skylarstone so I can check it out. You got to do it quick. I know so, it'll be closing here soon. Yeah. I might have to wait till next year. Well, even next year, better do it sooner rather than later since we're replacing the building. So, Are we? Yeah. When? I think as soon as they can. It's, a, it's from TWA, you know, if you were. This is like stepping back into the past. Yeah, I've seen pictures of it. And, um, but it's, it's, it's all coming down. Uh, oh, man, you could just see the stewardesses and they're out and they're. Yes. uniforms there standing in front of the place and all that and I'd hate to see the place go I I still love the airline yeah if it was so I was a American Airlines employee on 9-11 yeah there were two of my planes that were taken that day oh man and after that day the industry became very unstable yeah I just I I had to get out of that industry because I had two kids I had to take yeah. care of yeah so yeah. That was the only reason why I left, but if, if the industry hadn't become as unstable, I would still be there today. Yeah. I just, I loved it. Yeah. I still like, you know, I'm hoping they have another big project with the state-owned uh, airfields or something, just so I can get out and do something aeronautics. Oh, I would. Something. If you need help, give me a call. <laughs> no, I tell you, the beacons were interesting as hell. Um, I kind of, you know, I grew up here in Helena, so I, there's beacons on three sides of the valley. I just kind of grew up with them and didn't know anything about the history of them at all until that project started. Then you get an appreciation how important those were to aviation history in Montana. Right. Before radar and all that other navigational stuff. And, and uh, the system is so simple. It works like, it works like a charm, even now. I love that stuff. I really yeah. do. There so, was, I had wrote down two different things to kind of bring up with you that okay. I wanted to talk about. And we've actually already covered the first one. It was that yeah. one sentence that yeah. I, I thought was just absolutely perfect for the, what we're talking about here. I'll, um, I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you this about that. that. The one thing I've always had a sense of here was it's a family and unlike a lot of you know the historical society is that way I don't think DNRC is my wife works there and I don't get that sense from her about that place but um, that this place is different I mean we're I dip, we're not we're separated from everybody else out here anyway and um, but it just feels more like a family one of the nice things I like about Mac and the leadership leadership team in general that's up yeah. here is they are actually very supportive of my job mm -hmm. and alternative ways for me to do what I do. Yeah. So while I'm a trainer technically, yeah. my background is more of employee performance improvement. Yeah. So finding ways to make things better for our employees to make it so that they perform at their maximum. Yeah. And so doing things like the podcast, yeah, finding different ways to do this. Well, mm -hmm. I've been getting pushback initially from putting these out, yeah, from a couple of different people, yeah, and they're starting to step in and say, "Oh no, yeah, even if we only hit five people with this, yeah, this is a new way of doing things. We're going to try it, yeah. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Yeah, so we'll, we'll try something else. Yeah, yeah. 
this is called innovation. We try it. If it doesn't work, we'll look for alternative methods. And for me, I like that. That's true of the department as a whole for the last century. That is what I've heard and that yeah. I've gathered from that. Right. You know, my, my position, I also have a master's degree. Uh -huh. um, in, in my position, I know that people in my field who have my education level and, and experience, they get paid significantly more than what I get paid here. Yeah. And I'm not here, staying here, because I want to get rich off of the agency. Yeah. There are other things that are of more value to me. Mm. And the culture of where I'm working is a huge aspect of what makes me stay. There's been, I, I hear you understand that too. And one thing that I've, I get paid better here than what they get at the Historical Society. And so there was a time where I wanted to go work over there, but they wouldn't, couldn't offer me a lateral move. But then something would happen here, and I thought, well, why would I want to go over there anyway? Right. And um, there's been more than, than a few times where I've been out going to some project, especially when I was younger, that I kept thinking, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. That's what I think yeah. about my job. Yeah. I have such fun doing my job. Yeah. This right here. Yeah. I love doing this. Yeah. And, yeah, the editing part of the audio is not the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> Sitting there listening yeah. for an hour, yeah. know, cutting out things. and That may not be the greatest, most exciting part. Yeah. But overall, mm -hmm. I'm going, I get to do this? They need me to do this? Yeah. The pay's not bad for no. Montana. So, huh. in, you know, speaking of historic stuff, you were talking about that Bridges book. Mm -hmm. That bridge that's in Fort Benton. Yes. It's got all those nifty lights on it now. Uh-huh. It's either her dad or her granddad oh, ran really? all those lights. That's the most historic bridge in Montana. It's the oldest steel bridge in Montana. That's still standing? Yeah, but Gallatin County still has some of the oldest bridges in Montana too I'm finding out so steel bridges they've all been damaged by flooding this year so I don't know how much longer they're going to be around so oh, that's a shame are they going to yeah. be able to fix them um the one that I went and looked at a couple of weeks ago no because it, it stove in the, the foundation and twisted the bottom cords that support the bridge and uh, so it's got a noticeable tilt and a kind of a swirl to it now there's two others that are north of Three Forks that were built about the same time and, and I don't know exactly what's wrong with them, but they were condemned as well. So Were those those ones that were at the beginning of this bookhead that were used as toll roads? No, they weren't on the toll roads. None of those bridges are around anymore. Okay. So, but unfortunately. That was the the toll thing, that was I read over the thing about the whole French woman. Yeah. McDonald's has thing. Yeah, the French Woman's Road. And I, I had read about that on the historic marker yeah. that's on the way up there. And you wrote in there that McDonald Pass was named after somebody who came later. Came later. Yeah. But you didn't explain why or anything about that. Can you elaborate on where that name comes from with this person? Because um, I figured after that, it it had to do with something with making the past the way it is today, but... Um, well, it, it is kind of an interesting story, because the French woman, the old French woman, 
was, you know, she was a, a landmark in territorial Montana for a very short time. But the name of her road lasted for years. But there was never a name for the pass, which is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Because most of the time, that's one of the first things they'll, they'll name. It wasn't French Woman's Pass or anything. It was just the road. But there was Mullen Pass that was right there and Priest Pass that's there as well. And, and But that one didn't have a name. But, you know, she was murdered in 1868. They don't know who did it, but they suspect it was probably her husband. Right. Um, who then murdered his second wife and then confessed to murdering her. But that's all a rumor, so it's, you know, we can't be sure. I can't find him on the census records at all. Because one thing that I've always wanted to know is what the old French woman's first name was. I have no idea. She's just the French woman. Right. And uh, we don't even really know what she looked like. Yeah, but she had long, dark hair. And supposedly her ghost haunted her old cabin for, you know, until it burned down. And, um, but when he killed her, well, if Constant killed his wife, um, he left because he was afraid of the vigilantes. Um, probably rightfully so, because the Helen vigilantes weren't as um, choosy as the Virginia City vigilantes were. And... Um, so, but the toll road franchise was still there. I mean, it kept going until 1872. So, um, so essentially, just one of his, one of the French woman's husband's employees just took it over and started. But you had to make improvements to it all the time. You had to keep it open, keep it well maintained, or else you lost the, the franchise. Right. And running a toll road can be really lucrative at that time. And it was a lot easier work than mining. And uh, so it was Lige Dumphy took it over um, afterwards. And then one of his employees, Alexander McDonald, ran the, the, uh, ran the toll road for until the end because Dumphy wanted to be a cattle rancher, so he moved to central Montana to do that. So I think it's just through a process of osmosis that it became known as McDonald Pass. I don't think there was any conscious attempt to name it after him, I think it just happened. Kind of like the way roads were built in the right. old days, they just kind of happened after from use. And um, so Alexander McDonald gave his name to the pass, and it's just, I don't know how long he was there, I can't remember offhand, but uh, he left. And by that time, the county quit running it as a toll road, so that um, became a public route, and the county became responsible for it. Then after 1906, it was part of the Forest Reserve. Forest was in the National Forest System. And then the Bureau of Public Roads became responsible for it. Now, the interesting thing about that was in the late 1920s, early 1930s, the bureaus decided to improve that road because by then it had become the most um, used route, route over the past. There was still Mullen Pass there, but it was closed during for a good part of the year because of snow. Um, Priest Pass, I don't know if you've been over that yet or not, but it's pretty twisty and turny and narrow and dangerous. And uh, that wasn't a good route to go, even though it was on the federal aid system for a little while. But the interesting thing I like about McDonald Pass was several things. One of them, my great-grandparents homesteaded 
ranched on the west east side of the pass at the base. And so that pass has been kind of part of my family history too. And the remains of their homestead is the ranch is sitting out in the field there behind where the MBT's maintenance shop is. But when they were the Piera Public Roads was building the route, they had a surveyor named E.J. Axline that was on the crew surveying the road, the route the road was going to take. And he stopped at that ranch to get something to drink and to fill the radiator of his car and met my grandmother. And so that's, you know, that's how they met. And they got married and were married for 60-some years. And, and uh, ironically, I met my wife on a highway project <laughs> that I was doing for this department. Um, when so I you guys really here. like this department, don't you? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of fat. It's one reason my grandmother loved my wife so much, I think. But she was from the Red Lodge area, my wife. So it was down there that I met her. And, um, but, you know, there's this chock full of stories in the family about McDonald Pass. Um, my favorite is on June 20, July 20th, 1969. We'd gone up to um, Flathead Lake for the weekend because my mom's, part of my mom's family was from there. And my dad was trying to get us home in time to watch Neil Armstrong step up. I was going to say, isn't that just like a couple of days yeah. before? That was the day, you know, and he was trying to get us back in time so we could watch it on TV. And a lot of people don't realize this now, but that McDonald Pass Road was narrow and it was twisty and turny. And there was places where you could look over the edge and it was scary. And he sped down that road to get us home in time. And my mom was screaming at him to slow down and my kids were just, you know, <laughs> waiting to die and... But he got us back in time. <laughs> so, you know, that that's, you know, a good example of how highways have played roles in family history. And, uh, but that particular road has is, is always been one of my favorites. And um, not so much in the wintertime. But the section house up there was the first one built by the department in the 30s. And there's an old fountain there next to it. And... Uh, so I mean, it's got a it's got an important history. I think Priest Pass deserves a little bit more more publicity than it gets because it, for a time, was the route that the Model Ts took to get over the pass. And um, so I think it it really the Forest Service needs to do something with that. But um, you know, you you yeah. had a line in the book there where you said no one knows when the first car came. Not for sure, no. One of my girlfriend's uncles, and she's like fourth generation of of people to live here in her family. Yeah. Her great uncle was one of the first people to have a car here. And I don't know if he was the first, but one of the first. Yeah, there's a lot of the firsts in certain areas, so it's kind of hard to really pinpoint exactly when the first one was in the state. It's kind of like the first white baby, you know, right? And that type of thing. But um, I, I would guess it was probably right after the turn of the century that they started showing up. Yeah. And uh, you know, driving, motoring at that time was a real adventure because roads weren't designed for them. I mean, they're designed for wagon traffic, and a lot of the bridges were designed for wagons. And we're still using a lot of those bridges. 
<laughs> so. You know, reading through your book, I mean, it's just been, I, I really did not realize some of the stuff that happened. I mean, yeah. talk, talking about the toll road, first of all, I didn't know that was a thing. I, yeah. That right there, no idea that that had ever happened. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's a lot of history about where this agency has come from that yeah. really needs to be highlighted for people so they understand why we do what we do. Well, I think so. I mean, we, we keep with the evolution of transportation very well. I mean, a lot of the stories I, I kind of concentrated on over the years have been well, convict labor, you know, that the first road builders, you know, professional road builders essentially in Montana were prison convicts. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of World War One, when we started using federal aid money to work on roads, there were no professional road, you know, contractors that knew how to build a modern road. But prison labor did. Right. And so they provided the model. And a lot of Army surplus equipment from World War One was the first, you know, real important influx of, of um, road building equipment, you know, mechanical equipment. I don't think a lot of people probably realize how how this department really transformed Montana during the Great Depression. We had the worst roads in the United States in the 1920s because we couldn't really get our act together legislatively wise about how to use federal money. And so the counties were dictating how we built roads and which roads were priorities and, and that type of thing. And it just it wasn't working. So we had the worst roads, and we ended up turning back federal funds because we didn't, we couldn't spend it. We couldn't raise matching funds. But during the Great Depression, essentially the federal aid funds that were coming out of the, out of the federal government um, were grants. So we didn't have to pay back. We didn't have to have matching for right. um, a lot of them. Some of them we did, but not all of them. And so in the best way to put people back to work is building roads because you don't necessarily have to be skilled. They're trying to minimize the use of mechanical equipment. And so you put more people to work. It's it's pick and shovel work. It's hard work. But in the process, we built 5,000 miles of modern highway that was paved. You know, that's amazing. In 11 years, 5,000 miles of highway. And I mean, I think no wonder we were proud of it. No wonder we tried to get tourists to come here and stay a while. That's where the historical markers come from. That's where the maps that we all put in our cars come from. Um, 30s, port of entry stations to get people to stop. That one right there, I yeah. want. I, I want an actual copy of that. <laughs> you can find them on internet if you're looking hard. Or just walk off with that one. But I didn't say that. <laughs> So it, it's just, it's absolutely amazing. And then the same thing happened all over again in the late 50s, 60s, 70s with the interstate program. I was going to ask, so I, of course, I wasn't just now turning 48. So when, yeah. they, when they approved the building of the actual highways, the way that we know of them now, it was before my time. Yeah. But I've seen pictures of them building like I-15, mm-hmm. I-90. Yeah. How was that in comparison to building up the old roads initially? Well, I, one of the things I had always kind of noted was the fact that in the old days, in the 30s, in the 20s and all that, 
that the road kind of had to conform to the, lit, the landscape. So that's why they kind of, you know, the curves are different and, and all that. But once you got into the interstate program, where it must have seemed like the funds were unlimited to the to the designers and the engineers, then I mean that wasn't a, that wasn't an obstacle. You put it where you need to go and maintain that 70 mile per hour speed. So with the equipment, you know, they, they took out huge swaths of right away for it. Moved mountains. Essentially, if you drive between um, Livingston and Springdale, you're coming up into that canyon along the Yellowstone River. And there's the big cut. Is there that was a major that was a major engineering feat to put that interstate in that spot. And that cut is still there. You can still see it and get a sense of how the amount of work that went into that road. It was also a political issue. Mainly, you'll notice in the Yellowstone Valley between Livingston and Billings that the highway interstate tends to go right down the center of the valley. And um, that was causing some pretty significant right-of-way issues. As you can imagine, it condemned an awful lot of property to build that section of road because you were taking out a, a lot of farmland in the process. But in this, after, after the mid-60s, uh, when they started building four-lane interstates, before that it was two-lane controlled access highways, essentially. The, the chief engineer at that time, a guy named Lewis Chittin, said, no, we're not going to do that anymore. So if you'll note, in some places, especially in the rest of the Yellowstone Valley, that the interstate is on the side of the valley, up by the bluffs, on whatever side. And so the right-of-way was cheaper. You didn't have to condemn as much property, and you just built the road like you wanted it. So, I mean, it was a major effort. I mean, they hired engineers like crazy. They were hiring them out of MSU even before they graduated. I mean, they needed to build up that workforce to do this interstate program. It was a golden age. I mean, if you talk to old interstate engineers, now they're, they're unfortunately dying off pretty rapidly. I mean, it's, it's hard to equate that department in the late 50s and 60s with what we have now. It was like Willy Wonka, you know, the kid at the chocolate factory. I mean, the pay was good. You could build a highway any way you wanted to, essentially. And they're proud of it. I mean, justifiably so. One section they talk about the most is the Wolf Creek Canyon. You know, that had all the problems with it because you had to, you were going to build an interstate over the town of, of Wolf Creek, essentially. You had to reroute Little Prickly Pear Creek, which was a blue ribbon trout stream at that time. The sportsmen were really upset about it. And, and so it was, it was kind of a, plus the fact you had to do a lot of blasting, which caused some problems. And, and so it was, but that's the segment of highway they talk, interstate, they talk about more than any other. That, that is, particular one. I'm not a fan of going up the Great Falls. Aren't you? But... That little section right there, I love driving it. It's, it is so beautiful. It's my favorite section of highway between Seaman and, and Hardy. And yeah. I have to say this, the road to Montana, I hear people who have grown up here say how bad that they are. Generally, they're not that bad. No, they're not. We've been on some bad ones here. I haven't seen, you know, I think we've done most of those. The worst one was between Wise River and 
in Anaconda. I mean, they're completely unbroken up, so it's just dirt in places. But it's all beautiful now. These roadbed here, I, with the exception of a couple I've been on, but they were yeah. not, I, 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 there were county roads or whatnot, but for the majority, the yeah. roads I've been on are fantastic. Even the county roads are in pretty good shape. Yes, a lot of they them. are. And um, so I, you know, I, the only complaints I hear about are roundabouts. I kind of like them. Yeah, I don't, I don't mind the roundabouts. No, no, no only, learn, only once you learn how to use them, they're fine. Yes. The, the only time I didn't like the roundabouts, and it wasn't the roundabout itself. Yeah. Is I was going to somewhere in Billings. Yeah, the Shiloh Road. Yes. Yeah. And I had the GPS lady telling me where to go. And it was, yeah. at the next roundabout, take the second. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. after like 15 of those, it's like, Oh, oh God! Yeah, it's a little overkill there, going up Shiloh all the way up past Central. Yes. And, uh, but my wife just she refuses to drive it. I have to drive it. <laughs> but other than that, I mean, our employees here have done such a wonderful oh, job. Yeah. And I mean, you see, I'm wearing an MBT shirt. Yeah. I'm actually one of those people who's actually very proud to be not just in Montana but working for this agency. Yeah. And I love, I love the fact that you wrote stories about yeah. and found all these stories about the agency and where we've come from. It makes me want to ask one question. Of all sure. the stuff that you found out over the years about the agency, what would probably be the story that you like the most? Well, that's easy. Not a particularly glowing story for the department, though. Well, we've all had our good and bad times. <laughs> it, it happened permission to write this article because I'd heard this story and I'd read it in the Highway Commission meeting minutes, but I didn't read the whole story until later. In 1936, the, gov the acting governor, um, Elmer Holt, had a problem with the Highway Commission. And one of the commissioners in particular, they were political rivals. They were both Democrats, but one was a New Deal Democrat and the other one was a conservative Democrat. They didn't like each other. Well, the Highway Commission in 1935, when it was reappointed by the governor who died, and then this guy took his place, appointed a, a garage owner from Missoula. He was having some tough times economically because of the Depression, so the, uh, the other two highway commissioners appointed him the traveling representative of the State Highway Commission. And that guy proceeded to put on you know, an incredible amount of mileage on his personal car, um, going to the, to um, conferences all around the country, mostly Hollywood and Las Vegas and Florida, and racking up tremendous amount of per diem. He was making you know more than most, way more than most Montanans made during the Depression. So the new governor, when he came in, when the old one died of a heart attack, went after him, and pointedly he went after the chairman of the commission, which was his political rival, about abusing per diem essentially. And there was a big ouster hearings to get rid of the highway commissioners. The commissioners fought it and took it all the way to the Montana Supreme Court. But my uh, my favorite story is that, have you seen the movie The River Runs Through It? I have not. Um, watch that sometime with Brad. The Brad Pitt character in the movie was a reporter for the Helena Independent. And he was on the political beat. He didn't like the Highway Commission very well either, and liked the governor, acting governor. 
And so he wrote an article which was very disparaging, was disparaging of the Highway Commission and the Secretary of the Commission. Actually, I have two favorite stories about this place. <laughs> and so the Secretary of the Highway Commission was a big guy named Walter Whips, William, William Whips, excuse me. And he cornered Paul Byrne, Paul McLean, excuse me, outside the Highway Commission offices when it was in the State Capitol building and threw a punch at him because he didn't like the tenor of that article that appeared in the newspaper and how everybody was described. And so it started a fight between this newspaper reporter, Nor Paul McLean, and William Whips. And, you know, I, I just like the story because eventually the highway commissioners got kicked out of office because, yeah, they were abusing per diem and they knew they were abusing it. And, uh, and so, but the fist fight in the basement of the Capitol just kind of added a little bit of color to the whole story. So that's one of my favorite. My other favorite one is one that, that uh, in the early 70s, there was uh, a contest every year called Miss Montana Highways. And different bureaus and sections around the department could, could nominate female employees to be Miss Montana Highways. And they all got their headshots, you know, from the state photographer or the depart department photographer. And they had to go to a, a kind of a cattle call thing where the, the judges asked them questions and all that. And then somebody would win. And that would be Miss Montana Highways for a year. And then she was supposed to go to all the interstate dedications and help cut the ribbon, you know, and just be around and look pretty, essentially, to offset all these these ugly old engineers, I guess. And finally, they, they got rid of the whole program. And so, you know, it only went on for about three or four years. But I was, when this book came out, I was sitting down at um, Costco signing it. But, um, and this girl, woman came up behind me and just started, she says, Thank you, thank you, thank you. She says, I was Miss Montana Highways 1971. <laughs> I don't remember her name, but I was thrilled to death. I says, you were Miss Montana, you were so-and-so. And she says, yeah. I says, oh, man, I wish I would have known that because I wrote an article for Newsline about it. And it's in the new Montana Highway Tales book, too. And I'll get you a copy of that before you go downstairs. Oh, and, I would love that. And, uh, you know, it's just things like that. I mean, there's... Every, there's people all over Helena. I keep reading in obituaries. He worked for the highway department, you know, or he, she worked for the highway. And how many people in Helena once worked for this department? So, you know, and it's just amazing to me. My little apartment unit that I live in, mm -hmm. there's four units in my apartment. The guy who is like downstairs but over yeah. is Rob Burt's son, who used to be our safety yeah. person here. Yeah. Yeah. He just left. It's his son. Oh, really? Yeah. And then the person who lived directly beneath me, her husband worked for MBT out in Mile City. Oh, really? She's <laughs> just been coming out here to uh, help take care of her grandson. So I don't want to keep you too long. We've already been here a little bit over an hour. Yeah. But there is one last question I have. Sure. Is your books that you have, uh -huh. can people still get these? Yes. And how? Well, as I understand it, new employees get a copy of that book. We are out of books in HR. Okay. Well, then we need to order some more. And um, we can do that. It's still in print. So we'll, 
I guess, would you be the one I talked to about it, or would somebody else? I, I can be that point person, okay. yes. Yeah, I'll because see. we are redesigning our employee onboarding course, yeah. and we do want to give these out. My last onboarding class, which is the beginning of August, had 20 people in it, uh -huh. and I only have like six books, so yeah, I didn't want to give some, but not. Yeah, well, my daughter them. already has one, so it didn't matter with her. The reason why I'm asking is when this starts getting put out, uh -huh. anybody's going to be able to access it. So if somebody in the public were to be listening to this and go, I would like to check out this book, which, okay. by the way, I guess I should say is uh, Taming Big Sky Country. Um, yeah. You know, they might want to get a copy of it. And I sure. don't know if there's a place for if they're not MBT employees where they can find a copy of it. At. They could get it. Um, they could get it off. Of, Amazon has it still. I'm not sure. Historical Society here might have copies. Sometimes Barnes & Noble here in Montana, but there aren't that many Barnes & Nobles. Um, Montana Highway Tales, um, somewhere, you know, Amazon, okay. ordering through History Press. Um, unfortunately, the roadside historical marker book is out of print, but I think there's still a few copies of the uh, Conveniences Sorely Needed Montana's Historical Highway Bridges that you can get off the internet as well, through the Historical Society. And if they bought those up, that would be great because we need to do a revised edition. Beartooth Highway, same thing. I mean, you can get them easily through Amazon. Probably through the Carbon County Historical Society and Red Lodge, too, because they have a lot of copies there. I've actually been to the museum. It's a good museum. Well, one thing I'm trying to get going, and uh, I want to talk to Mac about it, is that we got all these great historical markers, but not very many of them talk about Indian history. That I would really like to start an Indian historical marker program where we get their history out there for people to see. That would be pretty cool too. Because, I mean, that's one thing I've always liked about Montana is that I know Montana history pretty well. So I'm always learning something new about it. But there's a whole other history to it that goes back thousands of years that just doesn't get out there. And I know a lot of the tribal members are more than willing to tell you the stories. Mm -hmm. And one of the tribal historic preservation officers from, from Crow country, English was his second language, and that's how he talked to you, was by telling you stories the traditional way. Jesus, you know, we really need to get these things out there. My, you know, why is this called Elk River? Why did the, the tribes call it Elk River? It's the Yellowstone River. You know, what did they, you know, what's important about this area or whatever? There's some dispute on this. She's either Cherokee or Iroquois Indian. Mm -hmm. So I'm like a quarter, yeah. either Cherokee or Iroquois. Yeah. There's a dispute on that. But, yeah. Um, yeah, it's... But it's a fasc it's, it's fascinating history, and it's interesting as hell to me. If it is, it's interesting to me, it ought to be interesting to other people. So I really want to get that going before I retire. I, so. I think that's a great idea. Also, that one about the, like the phone app that will, yeah. you have it up and running, it'll read off. Yeah. I want James Earl Jones to read the text. Oh, that'll be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fantastic. Yeah, that would be great. Either that or it was Barbara Eden, so I'd finally get to meet her. <laughs> I'm not sure I know who that is. I Dream a Genie. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I've had a crush on her since 1964. Which brings me to another highway department story, if you got time. Oh, absolutely. In the 30s, the department started putting out informational brochures and booklets and, and little 
things like that to, to send the prospective visitors to Montana. And uh, they did one in 1937 called Heading for the Hills. It's a story about this couple from Ohio, in fact, I think, who are going to come to Montana and the, the sister-in-law of the husband wants them to take their daughter, college-age daughter, because she's kind of fallen for this guy, college kid, and she, they want to get her away from him. And so the story is these three people traveling around Montana with this college kid following them around. It's a stalker story, essentially. But there's a picture in the book of these two port of entry attendants, and they dressed like um, like Texaco gas station, service station guys used to. And they're standing on either side of her while she's sitting down in front of this port of entry station, and she's looking at something. And I was doing a presentation for the last chance corral of Westerners one night, and I put I put that slide up, and I said, well, that woman that, that's sitting there that they're talking to is Pat Fletcher, the, the, the daughter of the guy that came up with all this. Bob Fletcher wrote the markers. And, and, um, and I says, they sure are paying attention to her. And this old guy says, says well, that's because she was hot. He says, man, she was good looking. I sure couldn't keep my eyes off of her. And then this old woman looks over and says, she wasn't so pretty. <laughs> and these people started arguing for 10, 15 minutes on whether Pat Fletcher was good looking or not. And I thought, I mean, history's not dead by any means no. in Montana because if they knew her, I mean, this booklet came out, you know, 70 years before, and they're arguing about whether <laughs> she was good looking or not. That is a fantastic story. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, my great grandparents were born the year Custer was killed at the Little Bighorn. That's one thing cool about Montana history. It's not that old. Anyway. Well, I mean, that, that goes back to looking at the history of this agency. Yeah. All the stuff that is out there that's really great that you're capturing all this. I mean, I think it's fantastic that we have your position here doing this stuff. Well, thanks. And I love this position. And it's going to be hard to retire. We'll miss it. But, you know, there's good things the department did. There's bad things. Yeah, I mean, that's just the way things are. I mean, like the... You know, abusing per diem. Right. In the 1950s, they wouldn't fire that William Whips guy. The governor told them to fire him, and they said no, and they all got, they all lost their jobs. I mean, there's just little things like that that just kind of put a human touch to the whole thing. It's not just building a road or a bridge. That's kind of why I wanted to do this interview with you, yeah. is to help our employees hear yeah. that it's not just about building a road or the railroads or dealing with the airline industry, that there is more to it than that we really are you know, really trying to build that culture here that that we're all here to help the people. And well, and I can, I can conclude by saying, you know, if you got a question about something like that, just send me an email, give me a call, send a Teams message, whatever, and I'll Human Resources Training Courses can be accessed through MBT Classrooms. All information in this podcast is informational and does not supersede any policy or collective bargaining agreement. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Adventure awaits on the road.